Well, good morning. How is everybody doing today? Hope you are well. We've got a little bit more time. Look at that. We're starting right at 10 o'clock. Amen. Okay. We're picking up where we left off last time, which is talking about holy priests teach discernment. Very quickly, and I'm going to do more review next week, because next week is our last week before the summer elective start. Uh, And so, main theme we're looking at in the book of Leviticus is that holiness is essential for being in God's presence. It's all about the, the heart and the life of the individual believer. And we have been making application in the, of this main theme to our lives today. And we will continue to do so as we pick up again uh, next January after next week. Uh, the point one we made is that God can dwell with mankind only through holy sacrifice. Part, uh, point two, holy sacrifice can be offered only by holy priests. And point three, holy priests teach discernment. And uh, that is found in, of course, chapters uh, 10 through 15. And turn with me, if you would, please, to Leviticus 10. We're going to look at verse 10. We've already, this is just a little review here. This is the very heart of the fact that holy priests teach discernment. And it's setting us up for, in verses 11 through 15, chapters 11 through 15, it's setting us up for the importance of the priestly teaching on the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And here it is. The key verse, verse 10. You are to distinguish. We said that Hebrew verb means to cause there to be a separation between one thing and another. So literally, you're to cause people to make a a separation between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, There's the phrase we're looking at that's going to set us up for chapters 11 through 15, which we've been looking at. And between, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. All right, you're going to to teach the people discernment, how to figure out what's clean and unclean, because God wants to use this to prepare you for going into the land of Canaan, into a very highly civilized area. Uh, They have walls walled up to heaven. They've got military might. They've got high culture. Well, unfortunately, their high culture, when it came to religion, was abominable. All right. But uh, the Lord is setting them up to realize Uh, You have to make a decision here. Are you going to live in such a way that you care about my statutes, that you care about my commands? Because you're going into a very hostile environment, and there's a battle that's going to take place. Real warfare. Now, I know you're not seasoned warriors, but don't worry. 
you follow me, I'll take care of things. And we learn in the book of Joshua that God's going to send in the hornet ahead of them. And uh, wow, these Israelites are not going to be on their own fighting these battles. One of the last time you heard trumpet sound and impregnable walls of a city fell over. When, you know, trumpets are nice, just ask Dan Kersop. Trumpets are great, but they don't make walls fall down all by themselves. I don't care how, long, how loud you play them. So here they are. God is getting his people ready to go in and do warfare. Keep that in mind because that's the application, that general principle of warfare now has application spiritually to what we live in today. All right, edible land animals. Chapter 11, we saw uh, that Israel could eat animals that divide the hoof and chew the cud. And we looked at some possible reasons why one animal was clean and another one was unclean. And uh, I promoted the idea that it was to teach uh, God's people principles of separation, what they could eat and what they couldn't. Edible sea creatures, whatever has fins and scales, everything else was detestable. There's a very strong word. It's not used that many times in the Old Testament. It refers to what is completely repugnant to God. Well, what was there about, say, an electric eel that was so detectable, detestable? And, uh, you know, you say, well, hello, it could shock the, shock you the living daylights out of you. But uh, there, was, there were other considerations. It was detestable because God said it was. All right, edible birds. Some of these birds have such rare Hebrew names, we're not even sure about, sure about their identity. Then we mentioned, hopefully, none of them were chickens, because if it weren't for a chicken, I don't know what I'd do. I don't know what they would have done. All right, edible, creepy, crawly things. Nothing was to be eaten here, except you could eat a creepy, crawly locust, a cricket, or a grasshopper. I never will forget one time I was in junior high school, and uh, there was a guy... We are having biology lab, and he said, uh, hey, you want some chocolate? And I said, you bet. Get me through this biology lab. And so he gave me a piece of wrapped up chocolate. I unwrapped it, <clears throat> ate it, noticed it was kind of crunchy. I thought, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bet that's like, oh, what's that uh, candy called? What's the rice, crispy rice with chocolate. And, and uh, then after I had ingested it, chewed it, swallowed it. He said, that was a chocolate-covered grasshopper. And I said, no, you're kidding me, right? And then he showed me the box. Sure enough, chocolate-covered grasshopper. I was sick for the whole rest of the day, just thinking about eating a grasshopper. Well, technically, it was a clean, a clean thing to eat. Okay, so... Here's a summary 
uh, principle for all these dietary laws. And it is found in verses uh, 44 and 45. And I think we took a look at this uh, last time. Uh, Wait a minute. What's going on here? Is that the next? Oh, that's in chapter 11. Hello. Okay, 44 and 45. For I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. In other words, I want you to be devoted entirely to me. Being devoted to God is one aspect of holiness. And the verb consecrated, uh, consecrate means, you know, you are to set yourself apart as holy to me. Be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. There's the motivation to obey all these stipulations. It is out of love for the Lord who delivered them from a life of slavery, a a thing they could not possibly have delivered themselves from, but God has delivered them. And there's the principle that we want to take a look at a little bit more closely today. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be what? To be your God, to have a relationship with you. And since I am impeccably holy, my character is infinitely great beyond anything you can even imagine. Because I am that way, you are to be devoted to me because I want to cause growth and holiness in your life. And so that's, that's the principle now that we want to carry over uh, to our time today. Israelites were holy when they obeyed God's covenantal stipulations from hearts of love for Yahweh. All right, so here are all these dietary laws, whether they understood the rationale between, uh, you know, for all of them or they didn't entirely understand it, did not matter. God gave these rules, and because I love the Lord for what he's done for me, I'm going to obey. So, out of love for Yahweh, who delivered them from Egyptian bondage and set them free to live as God's kingdom of priests in a holy nation. Remember what we said from Exodus chapter 19? Let's go back there, because that's really controlling uh, what we're talking about here in Leviticus. Okay, let's look at, back at Exodus 19. In the, on the third moon, three months after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him 
that is to Moses, out of the mountain, saying, You shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Everything that we've been looking at is about relationship. God decided he was going to have a relationship with Israel. He would be their God. They would be his people. And everything they do in that relationship is all uh, related to the, uh, the obeying the law. Now, therefore, God says in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. When you were a kid, did you have a treasured possession? You know, something that you carried around maybe with you everywhere. You didn't want anybody messing with your treasured possession. Maybe it was a special rock you found. Guys love to find special rocks. I found a limestone uh, trilobite when I was looking around an area near me where there were a lot of fossils. And I kept that limestone rock with a trilobite in it for years. Nobody had better touch my rock with a trilobite. It was my treasured possession. The most important thing to me that I owned. Well, that's the way God looks at us and the way he looked at his people. All right, so basically, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now keep that in mind, because that's going to be crucial when we make application of this to our day. That phrase about being a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, that's going to apply directly to us. Even what they ate set them apart from the Canaanites who lived in the promised land that they're about to conquer. All right, so this is all about God's people living in a way that is distinctive from these wicked Canaanites. Are you seeing any application of that to today? Look at the way our general society is going today. Yesterday, a transgender cyclist won a grueling 100-mile gravel bike ride. And he was first place. He beat the next, he, the next person by 17 minutes. You know bike rides, bike races? It's unheard of to have the leader win anything by 17 minutes. Do you ever watch the Tour de France? Oh, yeah, they win by half a second, a tenth of a second. Uh, but no, 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 this guy won, well, this person who is a guy who says he's a girl now, he transitioned in 2017. He stood up there on the podium. The second place and the third place finishers were nowhere to be seen. Why do you suppose that is? 
because they were truly women. And men, this guy was a leader of a SWAT team before he transitioned. You think there's any advantage he had in that race? Well, the true females wouldn't even acknowledge that he won. They just absented themselves from appearing on on the stage with him. We live in very strange days. The difference between what the scripture sets forth as a godly life and what people in our society are increasingly you know, commending is getting brighter and wider and wider. You talk about cultural, countercultural ideas that we have. Okay? For instance, the Matskos go out. They're, they're counterculture. They're telling people, hey, evolution is not right. Creation, God created the day, the, everything in six days and they rested on the seventh. And people look at that in our society and they say, why, are you serious? You mean you actually believe that? That the creation is only thousands of years old instead of billions? What kind of a crazy person are you? You have a PhD from where? What, how did that happen? The, the people who granted it to you must have been daffy. Yeah, well, that's, that's the way we are now. And, and this kind of difference uh, outwardly set apart Israel, and the difference that God wants in our lives is inward and spiritual. Application for believers today. We do not live in a theocracy governed by the Mosaic Covenant, but we live in a new covenant. All right? Not a covenant that was dependent on works, but a new covenant of salvation by grace through faith in our Savior. Principles of separation from the world system, from false teachers and from disobedient brethren, are in our day operational. In other words, God intended that the Israelites make a separation between the clean and the unclean. How does that apply today? God still wants us to have discernment. He still wants there to be a separation, if you will. And it's going to be from the world system, it's going to be from false teachers, and it's going to be from believers who are unrepentantly doing something that is clearly unscriptural. And I I declare to you, in our day, more than never before, we need to develop discernment, spiritual discernment in our lives. All right, so let's take a look at what God sets forth in the New Testament. First of all, let's talk about separation from the world system. Turn, if you would, please, to a very familiar passage to you, no doubt, and that is 1 John chapter 2. 
1 John chapter 2 and verses 17, uh, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those two things, devotion to the world system and the love of God, are completely, diametrically, in every way possible, opposed to one another. In the Old Testament sense, well, if you aren't interested in obeying the laws of cleanness and uncleanness, well then why don't you just leave Israel and go be a stinking Canaanite? Okay? Go live in Jericho. We'll see how that turns out for you. Not too well. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now here are three categories. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's lasting forever. Now, the world system, I define this way. It is an organized set of values that Satan has engineered to take people captive for himself. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't have any love for anybody, but he, he loves when people follow him. Where they declare, oh yes, the things that Satan has set forth, the principles of the world system, are what I live by. What's an example of the world system motto? How about something like, you only go around once in life, better grab all the gusto you can. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Budweiser's in a heap of trouble right now <laughs> with their, their latest advertising campaign. But, uh, yeah, this is, this is like what the world's mottos are that, that captivate people, that brings them under submission to Satan's plan for them. Okay, the world involves, first, the desires of the flesh. All right, now, what does that mean? There, are, there is a certain argument to be made that in the New Testament, the term flesh, or sarx in Greek, refers to the old nature. But, of course, the old nature has a means of controlling us. And that is the, the things that God gave us as natural fleshly desires that have a legitimate uh, satisfaction to be obtained. But notice, they must be fulfilled within the parameters of God's word. And the world system says, don't worry about God's expectations in the fulfillment of of these needs of the flesh. Just go ahead and fulfill them any way you can. Pick the example of food. The right kind of idea concerning food is that we eat 
to live. If we don't eat, we won't live much longer. But the world says, no, here's what you need to have as as a plan. You live to eat. Just make it a huge deal. I mean, uh, just consume yourself with uh, gourmet cooking. Nothing wrong with gourmet cooking. If you're a good cook, amen, blessings upon you. But if it can get out of the hand to the point where it's like your raison d'etre. I mean, it's like the whole reason you're alive is to cook and eat and enjoy new and exciting recipes and go to new and exciting restaurants and, wow, and make a glutton out of yourself. Yeah, it's got like, I used to go when I was a young man, teenager, I used to go to these buffets and I'd say to myself, I have one goal, to make sure that I get my money's worth. And when I was like, 15, 16, 17 years old, I could eat an astronomical amount of food. I mean, these, guys, these poor buffet restaurants, they were going broke when I walked in the door. And then I got to looking at what the scripture had to say about gluttony. And I thought, ooh, wait a minute. This is an area of my life that's going to have to come under control. It's, I'm out of control here. And of course, there, there are so many of these fleshly appetites. Uh, you know, what kind of teenager isn't looking forward to when he gets to enjoy a sexual relationship with a woman? But wait a minute, there's only one venue for that. Marriage. And so, I realize as a young man, ooh, I gotta, I've got to really pay attention to this area of my life. I began to pray that the Lord would provide me with a wife. When I was 18, I didn't know I'd wait another 10 years for that. Those are a rough 10 years. But anyway, uh, that's, that's what we're talking about. The world system says, no, no, no. Don't follow what God's word says. You just fulfill your natural desires any way you want. That's the lust of the flesh. The New Testament explicitly links right behavior and how we handle bodily needs with the Old Testament purpose for God's calling Israel. All right, turn to a a passage. If you were here Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Hoffman uh, got a little, gave us a little devotional out of this passage. And so let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to draw out some points here. First of all, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession. Ooh, there you go. Exodus chapter 19. What is said about God's expectations for Israel is directly applicable in the new covenant age. 
because it's not like the New Covenant doesn't have any stipulations. It's got plenty of stipulations. As a matter of fact, in the final fulfillment of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, tell us that God is going to write the law in people's hearts. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. And there will be perfect obedience in the eschaton, the last days. What a tremendous continuity there is between the Old Testament and the New. Okay, what's the purpose of you being a chosen race? A royal priesthood of people who are bringing people to me, a nation which is characterized by holiness, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, on the basis of all of God's grace to us, look what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, oh, sojourners, those, those were the kind of people who, because of their interest in being followers of the true God, would leave whatever country they were, they were born in and they would come and live in Israel, and they would be sojourners there, and they would learn about Yahweh, and they would place their faith in him. Well, we're sojourners. What a wonderful thing that we are. And uh, so as sojourners and exiles, we're exiled from our general culture and its approval, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, notice, which war against your soul. Wow, did you catch that? Note that Satan has designed the passions of the flesh to wage war against our souls. There are casualties in warfare. We're talking about life or death here. And we're not talking in the ancient world, we're not talking about, you know, you're flying an F-22 Raptor and uh, warfare is like a video game. You, you know, you've got all this information streaming to you on your, on your weapons system uh, interface and your target is 21 miles away and you push a button and you launch one of the many different kind of missiles these things carry, and you obliterate your target and you never even see him. You know we've disappeared because it comes, goes off the radar screen. No, 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 not that kind of warfare. We're talking about the warfare where you've got a sword in your hand and your opponent has one too. And you're looking him eyeball to eyeball and he's only a couple feet from you. And he's going to take that sword and he's going to try to kill you with it. And you'd better, you'd better treat that as a viable threat 
Because it is. You know, we, we have a tendency to think, oh yeah, we're not in a war. We're Christians. They have wars in the Old Testament. But no, 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 we, we don't fight wars anymore. Oh, yes, we do. And this battle with the flesh is a continual warfare every single day. And you know what? This warfare is characteristic of Christians. If there's no warfare going on in your life, no battle with the flesh, do you even know the Lord? Unsaved people don't have this battle. They just go ahead and they fulfill the desires of the flesh willy-nilly, and they don't care. Believers are different from that. We're in a battle, a spiritual battle. All right, the next part of the world system is the desires of the eyes. Satan has been using attractive things to snare us ever since the temptation of Eve. When she saw the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and Genesis 3.6 says, it was a delight to the eyes. Absolutely beautiful. More beautiful than any other kind of fruit you can imagine. Even better than a nice polished golden delicious apple or something. No, no, not golden delicious. I don't even care for those. How about a honey crisp apple? Ooh, it's beautiful. Love honey crisp apples. Our society is steeped in covetousness. Modern advertising just makes this covetousness worse. We think we see things on advertisements and we have we say to ourselves, man, I gotta have that. Gotta have that. Can any can you think of anything like that? You know, that you say, boy, man, oh man, that's attractive. Whoa, how'd that get on there? That is a 2023 Chevrolet Stingray Z06 with a Z07 performance package. Got $150,000 you don't know what else to do with. You, my friend, could own one of these. Zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds. Top speed, way over 200 miles an hour. Over, I think as I recall, you have cornering force of 1.22 Gs. That means 1.22 times your weight is being forced to the outside of the vehicle. Better have bolstered seats, nice, you know, nice seat belts that keep you in place because you'd go flying out of the car if it didn't. And not only that, the thing is so cool. One of my friends has a 2022 Corvette. It's not the Z06 model, but it's way cool. It's blade silver with a black and yellow interior. And I have, I have breakfast with him once a month, along with some of the other homeowners association guys I used to be on a committee with. And when he pulls into the parking lot of IHOP, you ought to see total strangers don't know the guy at all. And they just sort of come out of the woodwork 
and they all assemble around his Corvette, and they go, oh, this is just the coolest thing. I wish I had one of these. And you know what? You might be sitting here thinking, I wouldn't have a car like that if somebody gave it to me. Oh, but Satan's got a, something that he knows you want. It's not a car like that. It's something else. I don't know what it is, but he's got a temptation directly targeted at what you would must have. Now, look, I don't want to be down on somebody who has a nice, fast car. It's possible that it could be God's will for you to have a car like this. In other words, if you can afford it and you are going to use it for a witnessing tool, like I said, it's going to draw attention. You're going to be the center of attention. Pass out tracks and tell people this car is just a car. Gets me from here to there. Yeah, it might get me there fatter, sir, than your Toyota Prius, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just a thing. What's really important in life is your relationship with Christ. Okay, you could use it as a witnessing tool. But for me, what did I spend my career doing? Teaching at Bob Jones. You think I can afford this? Of course not. But what if I said, I've got to have one of those. One way or the other, I'm going to make it my life's goal to earn a Z06. And so I'll get part-time jobs. I'll start at Jacobs Engineering as a design engineer. Maybe if I'm not making enough money there, I can get a job at Cabela's selling guns. Oh, that's my dream job, you know. And so uh, one way or the other, I get this thing. But in the process, I suddenly don't have enough time to study for Sunday school. Oh, well, that's okay. We'll let Brian Hand take over the whole year. See, there's a difference between our motivation and our heart in all of this. The pride of life is a third aspect of Satan's world system. All right? So, in Genesis 3, 6, Eve saw that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. Now, this is not a godly wisdom. This is a fleshly wisdom. This is the kind of wisdom that Satan has readily available. Oh, don't listen to God. He'll ruin your fun. You just listen to me. Enjoy yourself. Fulfill yourself any way you possibly can. It doesn't matter. Your life's going to be over pretty soon anyway, so you better make the best of it while you have the opportunity. Yeah, that's the pride of life. Satan induced Eve to imagine that she could make a choice that would be the opposite of what God had told her about eating the fruit. What did God say? Well, it's very explicit. In the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil off this tree here, dying you will die. And then the Hebrew construction there has the idea of certainty. You can take it to the bank. You will certainly die. No question about it. 
But Satan came to Eve and he said, you won't surely die. You know how it, hurt? it comes across in Hebrew? Not. <laughs> when Eve brings up the fact that she must not eat this fruit because she's going to die, Satan says, not, you will surely die. Uses the exact same phrase that God told Eve and puts a negative particle before it. Okay? You're not going to die, Eve. Come on, don't give me that. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Benefit will accrue to you for eating this fruit. So don't listen to God, listen to me. That's, that's what Satan is, is planning for the entire world system. And if we're not careful to be in the word and to be praying about this kind of warfare, we will become spiritual casualties. Pride is the essence of Satan's being. His ultimate success is found in getting humans to imitate him. Okay? So that's the battle. Who are you going to imitate? Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow Satan? Or are you going to follow the Lord? That's the battle that takes place. And we must be involved in this battle. We, we can't say, oh, I'm going to absent myself. I'm going to go and, and get some R&R you know, far away from the front lines. Can't get away from the front lines because the battle's internal. The battle takes place in our minds. It's, you can't get away from it. All evil in the world ultimately stems from the idea that human beings are the master of their own destiny and are autonomous. My neighbor across the lake from me has a robotic lawnmower. I love to watch it. You know, at first I thought it was a dog, you know, the guy's dog. But no, it's a lawnmower. It's autonomous. Once he sets up the parameters of a little wire around the perimeter of his yard, he just turns this thing on and lets it go. And it, it goes one down very slowly this way and then turns around and goes very slowly down. And eventually, I guess, it mows every square inch of his yard all by itself. And we look at that and we say, oh, autonomy, isn't that cool? Well, it might be cool in a lawnmower, but not particularly cool in our lives. No, we are not to look at ourselves this way. Satan wants to confuse believers into thinking they can do what they want and ignore God's word. Especially when all of society in general approves a particular thing, a particular lifestyle, then we can, got, we can get to thinking, well, you know, that, that must not be that bad. Everybody's doing it. No, not everybody is doing it. But Satan wants you to believe that. It used to be when I was a kid, the thought that two unmarried people would cohabit together was completely unthinkable. 
today in our neighborhood and in neighborhoods all across America and all across the world, you've got countless unmarried couples who are cohabiting. They're living in sin. But it's acceptable societally now, but not with God. Matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2 say, In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and so forth. But people's main trouble is their pride makes them think they're autonomous. There is no God. No God's going to tell me what to do how to live. If we're not careful, some of those ideas will get over into our lives. We'd better be careful. As well as being separate from the world system, we must also make sure that we are discerning enough to reject false teachers and their pernicious doctrine. That's the second main area of application of the concept of discernment. Turn, if you would please, here to uh, 2 John. We're going to take a look at verses 7 through 11. This text tells us this. For many deceivers are gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So in In John's day, the main aspect of false teaching was the teaching of Gnostics who said, no, 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 Jesus just appeared to be man. He really wasn't fully man, but he was, because he couldn't, if he were God, he couldn't be flesh. Oh, no, 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 that's that's anti-Gnostic. Okay, so that was deception then. The deception since then has escalated and become extremely multifaceted. The watershed issue in our day mostly centers on the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. We must continually guard against anyone who says he's a believer but rejects the doctrine of inerrancy. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but as somebody who taught uh, seminary classes for almost 30 years, I can tell you there are lots of people in this category today. They say, oh, yes, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. But, uh, you know, look at this verse right here. This, This is an error in the Scripture Well, maybe they're not that blatant about it, but uh, whenever they don't uphold the doctrine of inerrancy, if they don't hold that doctrine, how would you know that anything in the Scripture is not an error? It's either inerrant or it isn't. No middle ground here. So, We've got all kinds of people like this. When you pick up a book, let's say you pick up a commentary on Leviticus, and you're reading through, 
And the commentator says something like this. The book of Leviticus is mostly written from the priestly source. Uh, you know, we've got the, the Elohimist source. We've got the Deuteronomist source. Uh, we've got these various sources of the source critical theory. And Leviticus is a priestly source document written in post-exilic days. <laughs> oh, okay. Some 1,000 years later, then it was actually written. It wasn't written by Moses, this person will say. No, no, it developed over a period of time. And we had redactors that redacted the various uh, sources into the current book we have today. Well, that's just as, as evidence of somebody who doesn't believe anywhere close to the, to the, uh, the uh, concept of inerrancy. And yet, this might even be a person who says he knows Christ as his Savior. How does that work? Well, I don't know how that works. Finally, we must be willing to separate even from other believers if they continue to walk in unrepentant violation of clear scripture. We're well past our time right now, uh, but 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, tell us that if somebody is living in disobedience to the scripture and they will not repent of that when given the opportunity, then we are to put a believer like that right out of the fellowship of the church. Okay, so there are some ways that these elements apply to us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, your word. (laughs) Your word that teaches us the importance of discernment in our lives. We pray that you will use these scriptures, make us discerning people who aren't fooled by the battle that Satan is waging against us who follow Christ and are looking for his return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.